Blog Talk Radio. Good Saturday morning. Good Saturday morning, the day before Easter. So I know a lot of you guys may, may have been away from work yesterday, and, and, and kudos to you, and I hope you enjoyed your day off. First, a lot of people might be off on Monday on a, the extended holiday Easter weekend. So we, we want enjoy your weekend. That's the first thing. And uh want to also welcome you again to Blog Talk Radio and Blake Radio, where we also air over at Blake Radio as well. On this Saturday, April the 7th, 2012, and happy Easter to everybody out there. And thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us here. It is truly a joy to have you here. For those who are loyal listeners who've been with us now for going on eight years, I I, I just, as I always say, thank you so much. You have no idea how much I appreciate you. So thank you for being with us for going on eight years. For those who it might be your first time, whether you just clicked over to Blake Radio or Blog Talk Radio, and this is your first time tuning in to Off the Shelf, I want to introduce myself to you. I'm your host, Denise Turney, and as I always say, coming to you live from the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And again, I thank you for your support, and I encourage you not to let another day pass before you pick up a copy of my new book, which just came out on the market this month, Love Pour Over Me. If you like mystery and romance, and it's a, it's a very, it, it deals with family relationships, in a romantic relationship between a man and a woman is so many twists and tangles in this story, but it is what happens between these people uh, who have their flaws and their good points uh, it is really, really going to move you, uh, particularly the relationship between uh, a father who happens to have untreated alcoholism and his son and then the son and a woman that he meets when he goes to college. Again, you can pick up a copy of Love Pour Over Me Today, any digital retailer, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, uh, uh, Google Reader, Ingram Digital, any place that sells ebooks, you can get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. You can also go to my website and get a copy, and that is www.chistel.com. You don't have to pay no shipping and handling, no taxes, and you don't have to wait. You just get the book, download it, and you can start enjoying it right away. If you don't have an ebook reader, no worries. You can download it and read it in PDF form. So it, it, anyway, you can get and enjoy Love Pour Over Me. And now to the moment that we have been waiting for. Let us go and meet our very special guest today. And today's off-the-shelf featured guest is Felicia Killings. Felicia is an educator, and she's the founder of Power, Faith, and Love Ministries. She earned her bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of California, and she is also the author of the book, Fear, Faith, and Patience. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Felicia. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. And we're glad to have you here with us to discuss your book and some of the the real-life events that are behind the 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 making mm-hmm. of fear, faith, and patience, and also uh, to also discuss some of your work with Power, Faith, and Love Ministries. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you at the beginning, I, I, I publicists will reach out to me, and sometimes authors themselves, and they will say, I, I have somebody I would like to have appear on your show. Do you have any openings? And then I'll, I'll look and just, I, at the time, I don't, I just put the person's name in, and I mm-hmm. I with any book, I was I didn't know what the topic of your book was until after I actually sat down and started mm-hmm. researching for today's interview. Uh, so mm-hmm. I had no idea, you know. And it's a, it's funny when something hits national news or it, it's in local news a lot. You think everybody knows? I had no mm-hmm. idea. So I'm mm-hmm. somebody who was clueless. I didn't know because I'm not a big news watcher to start with. So before we get into the uh, real life events that that inspired fear, faith, and patience. Can you give us a little background on Felicia Killings? Where did you grow up, and what two experiences from your childhood would you say have shaped you into the woman you are today? Sure. Um, I'm from Pittsburgh, California. I've been I was born, raised out here in the West Coast, and I grew up in a very devout. Strict Christian home. Both my parents were pastors of a local church, and they're still pastors, just in uh, two different areas. 
And so my relationship with the Lord became very personal and very important to me at a very young age. And so a couple of experiences, um, you know, when I was little, I always wanted to be a teacher, even in the first grade. I just admired the profession. I admired education and just the power of learning. And so when my father uh, saw that in me, he just really fostered that dream of mine. And he always made sure that I did well in school so that I could eventually obtain that dream of mine. And uh, just another experience is, you know, receiving the Lord and being baptized in the Holy Ghost. That was another experience for me because it, it helped develop and, and really cultivate my relationship with God on a deeper level. And so the combination of me wanting to have my own dream of being an educator as well as being a servant of the Lord, that just stuck with me. And I knew that, you know, a, a way that we can show that that our love for God is real or even showing our servitude towards others, is by serving uh, in the field of education. And so essentially that's exactly what shaped me into the person I became. You know, I I went to school, did exceptionally well in high school, um, went to one of the best universities out here in California, uh, you know, graduated with a couple of degrees, uh, and, and then I received my first, you know, teaching job by 22. So, you know, I fulfilled a lot of my dreams at a very young age, but I know that it all came about because, you know, God's hand and his favor was upon me. And, you know, I can never thank him enough for that opportunity. So that's my background. How how old were you when you knew you wanted to be a teacher? And this is something I ask a lot of writers who their career is, you know, to work as a novelist. Or maybe mm-hmm. they write a series of nonfiction books in the and uh, could mm-hmm. be across topics or in the same topic. And mm-hmm. I asked them, when did you know that mm-hmm. you were a writer? So some people I find is very young, and some people mm-hmm. say you know they kind of stumbled on it later in life in their thirties and their forties. How old were you when you knew you you wanted to be a teacher? And were you like did you, like playing with the chalkboard or whatever. What made your father know that that's what you wanted to do as well? Uh-huh. Well, like I said, in the first grade, at least that's what my father tells me, you know, in the first grade I just knew it. You know, I, wow. I, I was very clear on what direction I wanted to go. And, um, you know, I attended a private school. My sister and I, we attended a private school for the majority of our, our lives. And so we had small classrooms, and the teachers were just so, you know, comfortable to be around with, very family-oriented. It's not like what we see in the public schools today where you have that barrier between the teacher and the student and the families. No, it was very, uh, you know, familial. And so I just appreciated that. I just loved, you know, what a teacher did as far as making uh, education fun and exciting and you know, I just thought that they had this kind of power, you know, and I, I just wanted to be a part of that and, and to share in that same kind of profession. So I was a very young girl, and, you know, when I was a little girl, I used to play with my Barbie dolls, and my Barbies would be, you know, the teacher, and I would okay. set up my stuffed animals, and you know what I mean? So I was really playing the part of an educator, mm-hmm. and, you know, just... Okay. I guess my father seeing that, you know, he just really made sure, okay, this is what she wants to do. Let me help her by making sure she gets to that step. And it just stayed with me all throughout the years. Wow. And just out of curiosity, I never heard of it. Where is Pittsburgh, California? Is it close to Los Angeles? No, it's about 350 miles from L.A. in the northern part. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. I wanted to ask you next. Is it a regular practice for teachers? My sister actually mm-hmm. is a teacher, and I, I didn't think to ask her this, but is it regular practice for teachers to undergo a full background investigation before they start working with students and, again, every five years that they that they stay, that they continue to work with students? I know I, know, I was in the Navy. It, mm-hmm. Depending on if you work for, like, classified information like I did in the Navy, you have mm-hmm. to undergo a full background investigation. They'll talk to your neighbors. They'll talk to people mm-hmm. you've worked with. And every five years you have to undergo another one. Is that mm-hmm. required to become a teacher? 
Yeah, I don't know how it is with private school settings. I know that they have, you know, different regulations because they don't have to abide by state standards. But in the public school system, um, you know, uh, an individual has to, first of all, get obtain a bachelor's degree. Then they go through a credential, uh, the teaching credential process. And when a potential employer is uh, ready to hire someone, they do have to go and research the, the background information. So, you know, they'll ask for letters of recommendation or, you know, individuals who could, that they could talk to about your performance. Uh, and then they will do a background check, a criminal background check, just to make sure that everything is cleared up before you're allowed to go and actually work, um, you know, with the students. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just happens one time. I don't I don't really know about any other instructor who has, you know, has to do a repeated background check, but I do believe that every time, like let's say, you know, I, I worked at one district and I wanted to transition to another one, then that other school district would do another, you know, routine oh, background okay. check. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, the school that you the school district how many so you worked in how many different school districts as as a as a teacher? And and uh, were you were you did you work at a public school or a private school? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I worked for uh, one school district. I was with them for five years, uh, the Fairfield to Soon uh, School District. And uh, yeah, I didn't. I haven't moved uh, from any other district since then. Okay. Now I don't want to. I want to cover as much of the book, and I don't want to jump all the way to the end. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I wanted to ask. I mean, for our shelf listeners, so they don't they don't feel like they're big gaps. I'm like, what are you mm-hmm. talking about? But now you 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 stood trial last year. Is that is that mm-hmm. correct? Or or how long were and how long were you out of school before you went to trial? Uh, for our listeners, and I know they're probably going, what are you talking about? And, mm-hmm. and what was that process like? I know you cover it in your book, mm-hmm. um, Fear, Faith, and Patience. But when mm-hmm. when did you first you taught for five years. When mm-hmm. did you first go to trial, and how long were you out of school before mm-hmm. the trial, and what was that process like? Well, I have been teaching for four years at the school district, and uh, during that time I had gone through a lot of stuff in dealing with my administrators, my district officials, and you know certain students who were very hostile and threatening, things like that. And so uh, what I talk about in the book is all the events that led up to my arrest and potentially uh, the trial. So I was working for four years at the school district, and then the incident which uh, media took a hold of happened. And for about a I'd say about a, a whole school year, which is nine months, I didn't actually work uh, within the public school. I was still a part of the district, but I just didn't. Uh, they call it unpaid leave or something like that. Your administrative leave. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what it was. Um, and then after, I didn't actually go to trial. Um, and my my first book and then my second book, which will come out in July, explains why. But um, I just went ahead, had my lawyer, you know, settle it all because I was going through certain situations and I just could not deal with it all. But the case has been settled already. But even before that, I just went ahead and resigned from that school district um, because, again, you know, my book will really pull out all of those reasons why. But it was just too much to deal with. And the school district that I worked in was it. It's probably one of the most corrupt, unfortunately, school districts that I've ever been introduced to. And, you know, I came from, uh, you know, in high school, I went to Pittsburgh High School, which was a a public school, and they had their own issues, but even those issues could not compare to what I was confronted with uh, at this Fairfield district. And so just... And trying to fight against them, and it's hard when one individual is trying to fight against an entire system, an entire organization. And uh, for me, it was just best for me to walk away and, you know, just to say, you know, I'm at peace with everything and just go on with my life. So so what, what type of corruption, 
And then can you mm-hmm. describe that the, the school that you worked in? It was mm-hmm. a public school, but was it uh, did, like a, the graduation percentage? I know here in Philadelphia, uh, mm-hmm. I recently heard that the graduation is is like below thirty percent. Yeah, actually, that is that. I, I don't even know mm-hmm. if people, if people listening to this, they are like I think it's Baltimore, Detroit, Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is in Chicago. The, you, you, we we think that at least half more. You think at least more than half the students mm-hmm. are graduating. Uh, and I'm thinking mm-hmm. when somebody asked me that, I said, "Well, I know it's bad." So I said, seventy percent of the kids are graduating." They said, "No, mm-hmm. it's less mm-hmm. than thirty percent." And I was just mm-hmm. alarmed, absolutely mm-hmm. alarmed. And I don't know why city, mm-hmm. our city, state, and national government. That mm-hmm. is that uh, we are acting right. like that's not a big deal. That right. is. Less than thirty percent in in major cities of your right. students are graduating from high school, and we right. living in a in an age when if you don't have a master's degree, you're uh-huh. probably not going to get a decent job. Just uh-huh. now, and then you got less than thirty percent graduating from high school. It, it, uh-huh. You, I would think people would be up and on. <laughs> exactly. You would think. So, I'm. Yeah. What type of school district was? Did you work for? Was it a school district where mm-hmm. you know you had high graduation rates? Where a lot of the students did go on and get college scholarships and go to college. What type mm-hmm. of a school was it? And when you talk about the corruption, what type mm-hmm. of corruption? And were you the only teacher that had this happen to them? Okay, so uh, with this Fairfield school district, you know, when I first moved out to Fairfield, it was about seven years ago. And the climate, you know, when you get out here, you feel like, okay, this is an up-and-coming progressive city. It's very multi-ethnic, you know, about 25% African-American, you know, 30%. I mean, it's very diverse. Um, But the Fairfield District, however, is extremely uh, conservative in the wrong sense. They, I often felt like I was living in the 1960s where you had segregated communities and the schools often reflected that. And so the school that I worked at was called Rodriguez High School and just it was a newer school. It it opened in uh I want to say 2000. So it was one of the newest high schools within the school district. They had two other ones which have been around for many years. And those two other schools are what, you know, the city considered on the other side of the train tracks, and I'll explain that. In other words, they, they saw that as, okay, those are the bad schools. And they had a group of um, individuals within this community who did not want to send their children over to, quote, unquote, those bad schools. Now, they're not going to say, you know, the bad schools have blacks and Hispanics, but that's exactly what they meant. And so a lot of um, white families in the in this community did not want to send their children over there, and so they petitioned to have a new school um, erected in this Cordelia area. And Cordelia is uh, is still a part of Fairfield, but it's a more up and coming, more affluent, higher class uh, uh, community that doesn't have a lot of minorities in it. And so it was agreed upon. They got the school built. But the problem was that um, individuals from the other side of the tracks wanted to be a part of this new school because they got new teachers, new books, new facilities. I mean, everybody wants to be a part of the new thing. And so you had that transition of some individuals, some families who were moving from the other side of the train tracks to to this new Cordelia area and attending the Rodriguez High School. And so you have those conflicts. I mean, you had teachers who did not want those students there. You had students who didn't want, you know, the minority students there. And you had to deal with a lot of the racism. There was so much racial tension. And this is just back in 2000. And I didn't come on the scene until uh, 2006. And so, you know, that stuff had been going on, and it it continued even when I was there. And so that's some of the, uh, the strife. Uh, and corruption that was present. The problem was is that not only did you have teachers and other students who were uh, at odds with each other, but you had administrators who did not properly reprimand this kind of behavior. 
so students, white students, will walk around saying God knows what about blacks. Then you had black students retaliating. You just had all this racial tension going on. And what's worse is that uh, that kind of tension surfaced when it came to discipline. And so uh, in our school district, the African-American and Hispanic communities were being suspended and expelled at an alarming rate compared to the percentage of them who were in, enrolled in the schools. In other words, we had um, Rodriguez had about 25% African-Americans, but 65 or 70% of the suspensions and expulsions were black students. Right. You know, and it's mm-hmm. like that kind of stuff, those mm-hmm. kind of numbers just don't add up. Right. It just doesn't make sense. And so um, I know that there were some teachers who had raised that issue even before I came, but nothing was done about it. And I'm pretty sure that there were parents who had complained about it, um, but, again, there was no remedy, there was no solution. And even in 2006 when I was first hired uh, to teach at Rodriguez High School, I was only one of three black teachers, and yet there were over 100 staff members. So, you know, you have these low number of of, of, uh, minority leaders. You have this high number of black students and Hispanic students just being expelled and suspended. You just had all of this dichotomy. Mm -hmm. And even though there were some individuals who tried to address it, even some white teachers, had attempted to address it and say, you know what, something is really wrong with this school and with the school district, still nobody listened. And so it wasn't until uh, a particular incident had occurred on our school grounds in 2008, and this is what the book, the this first book really, you know, points out, that an incident happened on campus. It was a, a, a potential hate crime. But in our school district, we had no hate crime policy. So students could walk around saying all kind of racial slurs and not get in trouble for it. Or they could, uh, you know, threaten a a student who might be of a different race, and nothing was done uh, necessarily about it because there was no policy by which an administrator could follow to properly, uh, you know, punish them. And so, um, you know, when the incident happened in 2008, um, I caught wind of it, and, you know, I'm just not the type of person who can just let an injustice go by and not say anything. I'll try to keep my peace as much as possible, but just seeing all the stuff that was going on on a daily basis, it just really got to me to the point where I was like, okay, enough is enough. We've got to become active. We've got to speak out. And I tried to, uh, you know, when I was made aware of that incident, I tried to rally the teachers together to say, can we do something? You know, can we start some kind of cultural activities here or some kind of educational practices so that, you know, this kind of behavior does not go on? And, you know, my response was met with hostility from the administration. Um, But, you know, I don't want to get into too much details about it because I want, Mm. you know, people to read the book. But needless to say, it was because I I voiced my... my, uh, not just my opinion, but the need to get active and to say, you know what, enough is enough. We cannot just continue to let something like this happen. That's what started the tension and the hostility from my administrators and the district officials because that one incident that happened in 2008 actually also made national headlines. And my name was put out there as well. And so it was just this domino trickle-down effect that okay. erupted from that moment. Uh, when and why did you decide to start journaling? Something mm-hmm. something must have raised your and uh, your like uh, radar must have went off, and you might have. When did you decide? Mm-hmm. You know what? I better start journaling these events because something must have told you the crap mm-hmm. came hit the fan. When did you? When did you decide? When and why did you decide to start journaling the events mm-hmm. from the school? Well, I did it initially because. Um, I was so blessed to work with a select group of students who stood by me that whole time, and their families were just so supportive because, uh, you know, after I had spoken out and said something to the the school community about what was going on, I mean, it was really tense. I mean, we got threats to our lives. 
uh, just all kinds of stuff. And so that one group of students who just stuck by me, um, I wanted to honor them. And I told them, I said, you know what, this story has to be told for someone else to uh, not just learn from, but to know that they can get active. So initially I just kept a lot of my, you know, journal entries and emails and other documents just for a memoir for um Lisa, can you speak up, or maybe the phone's not right at your mouth? I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Can you There you go. That's better. Oh, yeah, that's better. Thank you. Yeah, so initially it was just a memoir for myself and then for my kids that I was working with. But then uh, as the years, you know, went by, because all that had happened in my second year of teaching, by the third year things got worse, and then fourth year things got even worse. So I knew, you know, I just felt something, you know, I, I knew I had to keep a record of everything that I had because eventually, I, I don't know if it was just, you know, a premonition or, or what, or if the Holy Ghost was, uh, you know, warning me or whatever, but I just knew I had to keep all of these documents because one day I was going to put it all together. Wow. Now, in the January 3rd, 2012, Daily Republic, former teacher please no contest and student sex case article, mm-hmm. It, it was reported, as you said earlier in the start of the interview, that you pled no contest to the mm-hmm. sex charges uh, of, of having relations with a 16-year-old student in exchange mm-hmm. for a reduced sentence, which was 30 days in an alternative mm-hmm. sentencing program, and that mm-hmm. you could have the charges reduced to a misdemeanor in December mm-hmm. of this year if you don't mm-hmm. violate, violate terms of your probation. Mm-hmm. Other than the reduced sentence, and you said there was just so much going on, usually when we watch... A, a a a trial and somebody says no contest. We we just immediately say, oh, you, they're guilty. They did it. They mm-hmm. did it. Uh, why? Other than that, why would you decide? Now I know financially. Mm-hmm. I've heard people say because I heard a, I think it was I forget his name, the game a rapper. He was fighting some type of a, a legal charge and he said he paid after he paid his attorneys more than a million dollars. He decided mm-hmm. let me just go do the time. He said I'm not going mm-hmm. back to. I'm not paying my attorneys any more money. Mm-hmm. I've paid them enough. But other than mm-hmm. the reduced sentence, because you would think, before I let somebody think that I had sex with a 16-year-old student, I'm mm-hmm. going to fight to the death to mm-hmm. prove I didn't. But other mm-hmm. than the reduced sentence, why did you decide, you know what, let me plead no contest? Yeah, um, my lawyer and I were presented with that same offer a year ago. And at that time, we were like, heck no, we're not taking that. And so my lawyer was very adamant about just going forth with it. And he's, he's been such a blessing to me. Um, but I was growing very tired and very weary, and my health was really affected by this. Now, when I stress out, I, I tend to lose a lot of weight. And I was already down to about 115, size zero. I mean, I, I was just shrinking. And uh, my health was fading. In addition to that, you know, I had learned that I was um, going to have a baby sometime later on that year. And just trying to deal with all that stuff again was taxing on me. Then I also knew that I had to dish out, you know, some more thousands of dollars for my defense, um, which I just did not want to keep giving over. And during the interim of, you know, last, April and even up until January of this year, we have spoken with several individuals to tell them about what exactly happened to me. And I sat down one-on-one with the prosecutor. My attorney, he was present just to, you know, show support. But I sat down with the prosecutor. I said, look, I'm willing to answer whatever question you have. And even that prosecutor had said, you know, he's never had, uh, you know, a defendant request to meet with him just to talk about whatever the case may be. And so, you know, I, I was like, I told the police, I told the judge, I told the prosecutor, and I just got really frustrated with telling folks what had happened, and yet they had, because essentially the law is not on my side. The law is on that former student's side. And so because of that, they were more inclined, even though, and I, I honest to God believe it, even though they know by conviction that what I had shared with them was the truth, still because the law is not there necessarily to protect me, 
um, they have to go with what they did. And even when the Daily Republic published uh, that article, there are a lot of people who are angry in the Fairfield community, and they were like, "Well, she's guilty, and she needs to, you know, serve time." And da 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 da. And I'm like, for them, the public, they felt like whatever deal was presented to me was nothing. You know, they're like, "That's a slap on the wrist." Because even after the charge gets reduced in December, <clears throat> excuse me, I have the option of clearing my whole name um, by, I want to say, by next year the same time next year. So it will be as if this whole incident never occurred. And so, you know, there were many reasons why I just said end it. But it's just it's stressful, you know, going mm. through the whole court system. And just every month I was like, come on, Lord, help me out. Get me out of this. I'm, I'm ready to be done. But it would just continue on and on and on. And so I, I just said forget it. You know, I need to move on with my life. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I had all these plans uh, that I wanted to do, but I could not move forward unless the case was over, even with this book project and me trying to raise awareness about what happens in the public school system and what happens to individual teachers. I, that book would have been on hold uh, even up until now, and I, and I just said, forget it. I told my lawyer, I said, look, I'm a fighter. I do believe in justice. But I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to do it through these courts because that system has its own issues. And I wasn't going to relive that entire situation because I felt like I had done enough. I felt Mm -hmm. like I was already vindicated. And it was enough for me knowing that the Lord knew what happened, my family knew what happened, and, and that was it. I could not just deal with the thought of going through a trial and, Ugh, it is sometimes you do, a lot of people just go ahead and just say whatever, you know what I mean? Because it, it can just become too much. Yeah, and 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 are you still living in that same community today? Mhm, I'm still here. Wow, I think I would have moved along. But what was the maximum length of time you could have served if you hadn't pleaded no contest? Um, I'm not. Quite sure. My my attorney was telling me about how, um, you know, some teachers have gotten years in jail, and uh, so I'm I'm not sure exactly. And I know that in different counties or different states, the law is uh, different uh, with regards to how they choose to punish someone. So I don't know what could have potentially been the maximum uh, prison time. So. I wasn't even thinking about that. I was just thinking right. I, I need to get help for myself. My health right. is, you know, fading and all that stuff. So, and why do you think the sixteen-year-old, the sixteen-year-old boy, why do you think he accused you of having sexual relations with him? Uh, well, without because my big, my biggest thing is I don't want any attention drawn to him or to his family. Okay. Um, and so the books that I put out there is the extent to which I will, uh, you know, discuss the nature of that. Mm-hmm. But I do talk about how, um, and I know media does not cover this at all, it, unless it's very, very minimal. But I talk about how teachers are uh, blackmailed and extorted and uh, how we experience such a violence in the public school system, and we're forced to keep silent about what goes on because there's no um, there's no law in place, there's no regulations or policies uh, in the district that help a teacher get out of a situation where she's feeling threatened. Um, I'll, I'll explain more. For example, after the Daily Republic put out their news report, on the the conclusion of my case, I contacted my mother. She contacted uh, another news reporter from Vacaville, which is about 15 minutes from Fairfield. And that news reporter, she was interested in the story, and I told her, I said, you know, I'm interested also in speaking out about what took place. I said, but I need someone who's going to genuinely report uh, on what I share. And so another article came out about two, yeah, two months later. Uh, the newspaper is called The Reporter, 
in Vacaville, and her name is Danette Mitchell, and I'm so grateful for her. But what she did was she highlighted a lot of the information that I was talking about, and she brought in some research to validate what I had been sharing, and that is that teachers, in effect, do go through situations in which um, they're being threatened, their lives are being threatened and blackmailed for things such as money, grades, sex, uh, time, whatever it is. And the problem is is that me- uh, media, national media, they don't want to catch a hold of that because that's a real problem. What they want to do is have these soap opera, you know, stories that they can promote out there just to give viewers attention. And so, in, like I said, the, the books that I put out, they go into more detail concerning that. And so that's the extent to which I will uh, talk about my experience. But it's really just to encourage, not encourage, but to make people aware of what happens, but also to incite folks to say, you know what, we need a law. We need some kind of policy for a teacher to reference so that she can know, and he, because this happens to male, uh, male teachers as well, so that they can know what to do in the event that such a thing happens to them. Mm. And, you know, and, and there have been instances that we've heard of, um, and generally when somebody, we know children, uh, 16-year-olds, I'm thinking 12 and younger, under, when they, when they generally say they were somebody has been having sexual relations with them, as I, I say, believe believe the child, because uh, this is an older student at 16 years old, because a lot of people don't realize it, but if you have sexual relations too soon or in an inappropriate situation where there's somebody who's in a position of power, and mm-hmm. it could be, a, 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 again, a teacher, a coach, a, a, a minister, uh, mm-hmm. And it can harm a person psychologically for the rest of their life. And I mm-hmm. wanted to ask you, in the in the in these situations where it is it is true that 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 a teacher has had inappropriate sexual contact with a student, and and I'm and I'm not saying at all that this happened mm-hmm. in this case because I don't know. But what mm-hmm. can a school what can school systems we know protections in place for teachers because I've heard the stories of where teachers get they literally get broken bones. A student just beats them up and maybe mm-hmm. breaks their arm. Or this happens in schools in America. We don't want to. We know we the bullying has taken center stage. The bullying mm-hmm. that happens between students, and we know that mm-hmm. some kids have taken their lives behind the stress yeah. of bullying. Mm-hmm. So too, I've heard stories. Uh, and this is going back years, where teachers actually get their jaws broken. Uh, mm-hmm. A student might pull a gun on a teacher. Mm-hmm. The older teenage students, and I've heard teachers say they've had problems with kids in the fifth grade pulling knives in school. So mm-hmm. we don't want to think this stuff goes on in our schools. We want to think we don't want to think that less than thirty percent of students mm-hmm. in some school districts don't even graduate, they only mm-hmm. graduate, that the 70% of kids going to a lot of high schools will never graduate, ever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't want to think about that in in America. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to think that kids are, we know the bullying, we can't turn our eye on that. That's just mm-hmm. gotten so out of hand, we can't turn away from that. Then it, and some students do beat up teachers, but and it's, there are also cases where teachers do behave inappropriately. We are human. With, mm-hmm. with students, mm-hmm. what what can school systems, parents, and mm-hmm. youth do to ensure the policy for the teachers mm-hmm. to know how to respond to blackmail? But what can mm-hmm. we do to ensure that t- ch- students yeah. are also not in situations where they can be harmed? Right. Uh, you know, right now, at least in California, there are um, very clear regulations and laws concerning the adult who is in power and his or her influence over the uh, the student. That goes without saying. I mean, the second a student says, this teacher touched me or this teacher said anything to me, bam, that teacher gets arrested, no questions asked. And that can be a plus if that student was really victimized, but it can also be very detrimental if, in fact, that student just, decided one day, hey, I hate you, and I'm going to ruin your life. So I hope that makes sense. So when it comes to that kind of situation, it is very clear um, what what a parent can do, what a student can do, 
the you know the confidentiality there there's such a, a great deal of protection for that for that child which th- we can thank God for yes the problem is is that there's not that same kind of protection for the adults now just because um you know someone is 16 17 18 years old that doesn't mean that they're just this innocent person who you know they just make some simple mistakes no there are some crazy folks regardless of their age who because of whatever it is that they're going through feel the need to put a, uh, an adult or a teacher in a position that is compromising or uh you know will threaten them and do all kinds of stuff just to ruin them i mean i've i've read a story where a student was mad at her gym teacher for something because he didn't play a a certain song for her, and she just had tension with him all this time. So she went to uh, the administration and said, look, he's molesting me. That teacher never touched her, never did anything to her. Uh, He simply reprimanded her one day because of something that she did wrong in his class. That teacher got arrested. He and, and even that student, she posted on Facebook that it was a joke. I mean, just all kinds of stuff. Needless to say, that teacher had to spend over $100,000 in legal fees. Yeah. Um, you know, he he almost lost his job, but because he went through a trial and was found not guilty, he got to stay at his job. However, the school district was trying to force him to get out because they didn't want him there. So right. he had to deal with all of this stuff. Now, he wouldn't have had to confront that had there been a law that says if a student is proven to be a liar and that we can find evidence that they're blackmailing, then such and such will happen to that student. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's not that same kind of uh, protection that is provided to a child as there should be to the adult. And Mm -hmm. so that's what me bringing this out is really to point, point out to the public and as well to different politicians, because I've told, I've actually written a letter to a few congressmen and women out here in California to say, look, if you don't help us, if you don't do something as far as, uh, you know, getting these laws in place, this stuff is going to happen all the time. Wow. And now that male teacher who has hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees, his life yeah. is ruined, well, yeah. you know, and he didn't do anything. And yeah, so and, he and, has to... He has to deal with that for the rest of his life and his career. Even though, you know, the courts found him not guilty, he can't leave that district and then just go to another one because mm. that other district, can all they have to do is Google his name and mm. say, well, we're sorry, you mm. know. You know what I mean? So there has to be some more <laughs> in place. No, and I, I agree. I, particularly, and then particularly with older students, because with that age, you're old enough to, to be mm-hmm. able to start Definitely to do something mm-hmm. like that, blackmailing somebody. Yeah, it should be protections on on both sides. But the, that for that teacher who was proven mm-hmm. not guilty, hundred thousand dollars on a teacher's mm-hmm. salary, he will mm-hmm. be paying for that for the rest of his life. Right. Probably the rest of his life. And 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 I was wanted to ask you. Uh, this interview is going so so quickly. How mm-hmm. I, I imagine how difficult it must have been to create reconstruct this story. To construct mm-hmm. it because I talk to authors who write their memoirs and whatnot, and they say that it is very difficult to relive mm-hmm. some of these things. People mm-hmm. who haven't even gone through what you went through, but who had different challenges in their life. Were there times mm-hmm. when you said, you know what, I'm just not going to write this book? It just mm-hmm. got so hard that you thought, you know, let me just forget it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, the first book wasn't so difficult to write about. Um, because I felt like, you know, I had gone through that experience with so many others. You know, at that time I had the support of the community. I had just a massive support from students. You know, so it wasn't hard to construct that portion. But the second I started to write about, you know, the the arrest and the criminal part, it was so hard to go through that. And, you know, I, I oftentimes said, you know, forget it. It's not really worth it. Let me just move on. But then I just kept thinking about that other teacher. What if there is another teacher who is in the same situation that I was in? What is she or he going to do? And I, you know, even though media doesn't put out very much concerning this kind of topic, I was able to find about three or four articles that really let me know, okay, I'm not alone. 
And mm. just them opening up or, you know, having their story highlighted brought some kind of hope to me. And mm. so I felt like, okay, I need to add my voice to this discussion because it's very small, but I need to be a part of that just to see that maybe, you know, there could be some kind of change. And so that that kind of, draw, you know, drove me to continue with it. But I also... I was very um, cautious and very particular about what I put out there because I didn't want to, you know, reread the book and then just panic and all that stuff. I wanted to be able to look at the text again myself and say, okay, I'm proud of what I put out there. So, mm. yeah. How is the book constructed? Did you write it in like a diary format or is it written mm-hmm. in like a, an autobiography, a memoir? Mm-hmm. How did you? How did you? How is it constructed? off-the-shelf mm-hmm. listeners who might be interested in getting a copy of Fear, mm-hmm. Faith, and Patience? The first book, the one that's out right now, is constructed in a, a biographical form. So it's just through chronology. I go from, you know, discussing the background of myself and how I got into education and things like that. Um, but that book stops um, at my arrest. And I could not conclude that one because, you know, my, my criminal matter wasn't completely over. Mm-hmm. The second book, however, which will be out in July, um, goes. It, it's a different format. It It is journal entries. And I did that because I wanted, again, in my mind, I'm just picturing this teacher and her looking for help. So every day I talk about, you know, what happened and um, how I went about getting a defense and, you know, what I tried <laughs> to do on my end just to get some kind of help. Uh, so the second book does go through those journal entries. And then the third book, uh, which will come out that, that that same month, is just my way of showing, look, this thing did not kill me. And if you're going through something, it will not kill you. You just have to keep your faith. Okay. And you're, you're saying that you and uh, you – you were blackmailed by the student, according to them. Mm-hmm. They said you don't want to put too much light on the student and their family, but you're saying mm-hmm. you were blackmailed. And and do you go into detail as to why you were blackmailed? You were blackmailed. You never had a relationship with the student, no mm-hmm. no sexual relationship ever. Is that what you're saying? You never had a sexual relationship with the student. You were blackmailed because what the student was angry about something that you had done or said or disciplined them or... Um, it was a whole slew of things, and uh, you know, I like I said, I'm not, I won't go into that part because I just cannot relive it. Um, but it was just, it was a lot of stuff, and for the most part, the book will uh, point out what it was exactly. Not. Uh, I'm stuttering because it's hard to talk about, but the books just highlight what I want or enough for the public to know. Because, again, I'm not interested in bashing anybody. That's not how I handle things. I just want to get help uh, for educators. Okay. And how long did it take you to write Fear, Faith, and Patience? And did you write the book as the, as the actual trial was going on or, or the mm-hmm. events or after the events, because you the the you hadn't had the final resolution to the no contest at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you write it as the as you were going through? You know, f- from mm-hmm. uh, uh, the administrators coming to speak with you up to the point of the arrest. As the actual events were occurring, is that when you wrote the book, mm-hmm. or did you write it sit down and write it after everything had happened? Yeah, I started writing after the arrest. And uh, I did it really because it was therapeutic for me. There wasn't anyone that I could talk to about the situation because, you know, an attorney will say, don't say anything to anyone whatsoever. Um, And that's just their defense mechanism. But that was hard for me because here I had all this stuff in my head and it was like torture. So actually writing the book was therapeutic. So I, I, I constructed it within the 2011 uh, year and uh, concluded it by 2012. Okay, and 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 I'm just 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 uh, uh, once again, it was a situation. You're not going into it a lot. You want to get mm-hmm. protection for teachers where you were blackmailed, but you never had sexual relations with the student. 
No, that's not uh, that's not what the defense is. Excuse me. That's not what the defense is. Uh, okay. What are what are readers telling you about fear, faith, and patience? What are they telling you about this story? Um, they are. I mean, I mean, it's mixed. You know, some are really shocked by it uh, because they just never imagined that a situation could happen like that. Others are. They say that they're inspired by the um, the text and the courage that I and my kids, you know, went through during that time. Um, for most part, it's eye-opening, uh, but that's that's pretty much the truth. But I would say overall, they're all encouraged by the fact that in spite of everything I went through, my faith in the Lord never uh, got to the point where it didn't exist. I just had to trust God in all things. So that's what really is uh, encouraging to uh, to the readers. And how did your parents respond to the, to the to events the, and then also later to the book? My parents, my family were devastated, uh, just as any parent would be. Um but they were very supportive and very protective. Um, they were there for me every single day. Uh, and it wasn't just them. It was, you know, my sibling, uh, siblings, my step-parents, uh, my godparents. And I just had a good core surrounding me. And as far as the book goes, my mother, who's really helped to promote it, has been proud of it because, you know, a person can just walk away. I, I have the choice to just walk away, live my life, and not speak on it again. And so it takes a lot for an individual to just say, you know, I'm going to talk about this because my mission is to uh, help somebody else. So that was pretty much the reaction that I got from my immediate family. If, if I, I guess my question is, if... If the defense was not that the event didn't happen, how can the book help a teacher? If if you're like saying I didn't do it at all, that I just I did not have a sexual relationship with that student, and I was charged with something I didn't do, I can understand that. But if it was that I did, and then the student blackmailed me, and I didn't get, that's where I get. I'm having confusion. If you're saying I didn't do it, I did not do it, and I was charged with something I didn't do, and this this is what happened, and I'm sharing this experience in fear, faith, and patience. That I understand. But if you're saying I did have a relation with a student, and then because I was railroaded the way it was it was done in the courts or whatever, I have a little, it's a little cloudy for me from that aspect. Of it. That's because I'm talking about rape. Oh, so you're saying what? What you you didn't? Okay, it was if if it occurred, it was consensual. That's what I'm hearing hearing now. If it occurred, it was consensual. You didn't know what he was forced to do anything, and maybe you were charged with it being like forcing yourself on a student, and that did not is not what happened. I want. I wanted to, and I, and I know you, because this this is not over for you legally. So I understand that you can't really go into detail on it. So that part I do understand, but that's just what I'm picking up. But and again, I understand for legal reasons, you might not be able to go fully, fully into it. And you probably maybe disclose more in the book, fear, faith, and patience for those who want to know more about, you know, what actually happened. You can pick up a copy of Fear, Faith, and Patience to learn, to get more details, what led up to the events, what actually occurred, and what actually happened through the process, through the trial. What did you learn about yourself while you were creating Fear, Faith, and Patience that you didn't know despite all you had gone through before you sat down to write the book? I learned that no matter what comes against me, that I have to keep trusting God. Mhm. Okay. And and how can off the shelf 
listeners get a copy of Fear, Faith, and Patience? They can uh, go to Amazon.com or other online book retailers, and uh, they can purchase a copy from there. Okay. Okay, so it's in bookstores, and it's also uh, in e-books, so they can go get a copy. And are you going to be... Go ahead. It will be available on e-books later this year. Okay. But okay. they can purchase it online. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and and so it's a book about a, 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 a charge that you were given, almost like that you forced yourself on a student or raped a student, and you're saying, no, that is not what occurred. And then you go through the process of how you are dealing with that. I wanted to ask you next, are you going to be on the road attending book signings or doing book readings? And if so, can you give us some of the places that you're going to be at in, over the upcoming months and weeks? Yeah. Um, well, I just got done finishing a blog tour for the past three weeks. Um, within the next few months, I hope to uh, have some book signings, but that's uh, in the making so, for right now. Okay. And what's the title of your next book where you go into the the actual mm-hmm. trial and well, you did you when you go further into the court case, what's the next title of that book? It has the same main title, Fear, Faith, Patience, um, but it, the subtitle is Letters to My Lord, and those are again the diary entries. Are you are you so you're not teaching now? Other than the books, have you decided you want to go in, down another career path? going forward, or are you going to try to go back into teaching? Uh, No, not teaching anymore because, uh, like I said, the situation was just too much for me, and at this point there's not really much protection for an educator. So for me, I just, um, my goal or my objective right now is just to, you know, be a good mother and uh, just to take my time to really heal from everything that's happened. And, uh, you know, with my small businesses that I have going, like my book business, I'm also interested in starting a nonprofit organization that helps uh, teenage girls get out of the sex trade industry that's prevalent in the Bay Area over here. Uh, So those are the things that I'll be focusing on for the remaining part of this year. But my goal, again, is to, you know, just get in contact with individuals who can really help uh, you know, provide better protection for educators. Okay. And can you tell us just a little bit about when did you start the Power, Faith, and Love Ministries, and why why did you decide to start that ministry, and what are some of the services that you provide through it? Mm-hmm. Um, PFL Ministries, um, I was inspired by that, by the Holy Ghost, during the 2011 year. And, uh, you know, during my time with the Lord, I was just, you know, pleading for him to help me. Um, and so I said, you know, Lord, if if you help me with this situation, if you clear my name, then I promise to do whatever it is that you want. And so during that time, he gave me uh, visions to go ahead and continue to help um, individuals within the community with regards to serious issues that go on, such as uh, sex trade and prostitution and things like that. So right now, the book business is taken off, so that was just one of those organizations. And in that, it helps in certain ways. And then my second thing is to start this nonprofit organization called Hope for Esther. And again, that will work with teenagers who want to escape prostitution, um, that situation. And then over the next five years, I want to develop you know, a few more organizations that really uh, pull from my educational experience and just to really minister to the community the same way that I have done always. You know, I don't want to ever neglect that dream that I had of serving others and helping others. So in spite of what I've gone through, I still want to maintain, you know, who I am and uh, who God made me. So. Okay, well, I thank you for taking time out of your day to be here with us. We've been speaking with Felicia Killings, who is the author of the book, Fear, Faith, and Patience, and she has a second. That 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 book deals with the 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 early part of the charge that she had uh, that she had forcible sex with a student, and then she has a second book coming out that goes further into the actual court case um, uh, with 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 
which that she dealt with the, with the student where she pleaded no contest. I believe it was either in December of 2011 or January of this year, and it, it's still it's still a little ongoing, uh, being that she's on probation, and it, that won't be. That will be through the end of this year. So anybody who's interested in learning more about the story itself, and Felicia was a school teacher in California. Anybody who wants to know more about the story can get a copy of her book, Fear, Faith, and Patience. I don't know where else you're going to get more info on the story unless you sit down and talk with Felicia yourself. So the title of the book is Fear, Faith, and Patience, and her second book will be out, you said, later this year? Correct. Later this year. And to our off-the-shelf listeners, as always, I thank you for being here with us. Please come back next Saturday at 11 o'clock where we continue to bring you. This is one of our – I've never covered on off-the-shelf a topic like this, ever. So this is no, – normally on the show we have novelists and publicists and editors, uh, but I'm, I'm, any story I, I, I'm open to – uh, a story, and you, the listeners have to take away from what they hear in the interview their own views about uh, the, what they heard during the interview. So I want to thank Felicia for taking time out of her day to be here with us. Please come back next Saturday, 11 o'clock, when we always kick off here at Off the Shelf. We'll bring you other writers and editors and publicists and publishers and other movers and shakers in the book industry. And as I always tell you, remember you're so incredibly valued and so truly blessed. Go out and create a marvelous day for yourself. And happy, happy Easter to everyone out there in Radio Land. Thank you again so much, Felicia. And I wish you and all the people involved in the situation the very best. To our listeners, bless you. Bye for now. Go create a fabulous day for yourself. Please, I'll shoot you an email.